0: How's everybody doing today? We're holding hands. That's awesome. Okay, let's pray. Okay? Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here today. Thank you we can learn from you. Thank you that we can sing and that we can hear about how much you love us. Pray that you would make Children's Church very special this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Always glad some adults come to You'll want to get out your sermon outline. And that to follow along. Everybody today, then we're missing a bunch of people. You can tell. We have a long passage this morning, so I'm going to sort of go through it as we go through the sermon. But uh, let's open with a word of prayer Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it. We need it as much as. The original audience of all those uh, former Hebrew slaves that heard it for the first time. We need to be reminded of what makes God great. We need the glory of the Lord. We need Jesus. We need a deliverer, a redeemer, a savior. We need the salvation that he brings us. And so this morning we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. We are in Exodus Uh, the very end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 today. You'll want to turn there, second book in the Bible. Have that so you can follow along. Back in November of 2012, there was a New York Times article written by uh, Dr. Uh, Nail Ferguson. He's a historian at Harvard and also a columnist for the New York Times. And uh, he put his finger on something important when he said that we yearn for turning points. He writes, just as economists have predicted nine out of the last five recessions, so journalists have reported nine out of the last five revolutions. Got to think about that for a minute. And he says the, the reality is they are reporting and predicting far more recessions, and revolutions than there actually are. Every election, he says, is hailed as epic-making. Every president is expected to have a new foreign policy doctrine. A minor redesign of a cell phone is hailed by the devotees of the Apple cult as a paradigm shift. He said the point about paradigm shifts is they don't happen every other year. They just don't happen that often. Now, perhaps you've never heard of Thomas Kuhn or his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. And yes, it's a tad academic. But it was there that he coined the term that you're now familiar with, and that's the paradigm shift. You look at the world one way, then something dramatic happens, and that forces you to look at the world in a new way. That's a paradigm shift. And I think that's insightful. You see, we do yearn for turning points. We deeply desire paradigm shifts. We want change, personally, culturally, politically, even spiritually. And even the people who say they hate change, deep down want change. We're suckers for the next big thing. Everyone's going paleo. Crossfit will change your life. My favorite, the tiny little robotic vacuum cleaner that does the housework and chases the cat while you're gone. We're looking for something, some gadget, some revolutionary something that will transform our lives and fix them up and revolutionize our day and change our world. You know, real change, as Dr. Ferguson points out, Real revolutionary, epic-making change doesn't happen all that often. So as we turn our attention to Exodus chapter 3, we are in fact reading the record of a real epic-making turning point. It will prove to be a turning point, certainly for the people of Israel, who are languishing at this moment under the brutal oppression of their Egyptian taskmasters. It will be the beginning of a process by which God will deliver them from bondage, establish them as a nation, and give them a land of their own, just as he had promised. The world will never be the same again, because one morning on the backside of the desert, Moses turned aside to see a great sight on the slopes of Mount Horab. Of course, this is also a turning point for Moses himself, isn't it? You remember Moses' life? I hope we have a few sermons about it up to now. You remember he began his life as a Hebrew slave in the land of Goshen in Egypt, born with the edict of Pharaoh to kill the male children of the Hebrews hanging over his head. And this Hebrew slave child, saved from disaster by Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt, eventually adopted into her household, raised now to be a prince of Egypt. But then as he intervened in a dispute between an Egyptian slave driver and a Hebrew slave, killing the Egyptian, Moses flees into the desert. And he lives the next 40 years of his life neither as a Hebrew, nor as an Egyptian priest, but as a Midianite shepherd. Moses' life has been one of turmoil, of one paradigm shift after another, really a downward spiral, if you think about it. But this time in Exodus, it's different. It's very different up to now. Moses has been, if you uh, would like, a piece of human driftwood cast upon the waves of the providence of God, blown here and there, tossed to and fro. But now in Exodus 3, God himself directly intervenes and his life takes a new turn. Not because of what's happening to him so much, as because of who meets him. It's an encounter that changes Moses forever. When people meet God in glory and in grace, they cannot, they do not, ever remain unchanged. Real change, the great paradigm shift, the revolution that we really need, comes in relation to the God of glory and grace. So let's look at the passage together. We're starting at a place where we see that God knows his people. God knows his people. When we meet God, Whether it's a meeting like Paul's on the road to Damascus, which we heard about in our responsive reading this morning, or through the preached word, our lives are forever altered. One cannot meet the living and holy God and remain unchanged and unaffected. And Moses had one of those life-changing encounters uh, with God near Mount Horeb. He's attending his father-in-law's flocks on the far side of the desert. And the burning bush narrative is a pivotal point in Exodus, as we learn about God. So, by way of review, again, we learn in Exodus 1, people of Israel greatly oppressed, become slaves uh, of Egypt. In Exodus 2, we learn in the middle of a very dark and murderous season, this Israelite baby boy was born, hidden, and then adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. His name Moses, because he was drawn out of the water. And he grew up as an Egyptian eventually identified with the people of Israel, thinking he would be their rescuer. But his plan backfires, and he winds up fleeing to the land of Midian, where he's introduced to Jethro. Mary is Zipporah, has a son named Gershom, whose name means a sojourner in a foreign land. The situation in Egypt is oppressive and dark for both the people of Egypt and the circumstances of Moses' life. Everything is somewhat disappointing right now. So the people and its future leader are in this seemingly impossible situation. It's all a setup for what's to come. Because once again, the book of Exodus is not primarily about Israel. It's not primarily about Moses. Exodus is about God. We see this beginning to take shape now at the end of chapter 2. Starting at verse 23. Uh, Exodus 2:23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now we're told what God's heart was For his people, as he looked down upon their oppression. Specifically, we're told that he saw them, uh, and as he saw them, he had compassion on them. He heard their cries, and he answered them because they're the nicest people on earth. No. He answered them because of a promise he made to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. In his love, he had made a promise to Abraham. He told Abraham that his descendants would be held in captivity, but they would be brought out. And because of his promise, God responds to his people's cry and begins to put in place their redemption. As we see, it becomes clear that before the cries of Israel ever came up to God, before the people finally turned to God in the midst of their suffering, God is already working to bring relief to their suffering. This event lets us know a few things. First of all, it lets us know that Moses has been away a long time. Stephen tells us that in Acts chapter 7. And later in Exodus, Moses himself is going to shed a little light on the chronology. But he's been away for 40 years. It's been a long time. The children of Israel have been waiting a long time, even since the birth of Moses, uh, for their deliverance. He's going to be 80 years old before he comes back to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. Second, we see the death of this king. That's what makes it possible for Moses to return. If you look at Exodus 4.19, God specifically tells Moses, you can go back now. The people who wanted to kill you are dead. So this is letting you know that God is setting the stage to be able to deliver, uh, to send the deliverer of his people back into Egypt. It also lets us know another thing, and I'd like you to think about this for a moment. This event recorded here in verse 23, uh, even before we get to the whole crying out part, we're told, the very first thing we're told is that the king has died. The Pharaoh, the guy who wanted to kill Moses, the guy who's oppressing all his people, He's died. One of the things that we need to see here is that God acts prior to the prayers of his people. God acts prior to the prayers of his people. We're going to read in the rest of this how the groaning and crying of God's people have come up to him. They rose up to God. But you can't think that those cries are what causes God to act. He's been working out his plan of redemption long before those cries ever come up to him. In fact, it would be more correct to say that those cries themselves are the result of God's work of redemption as he works in the heart of his people. God's the one who's moving them, leading them, causing the circumstances in such a way that they will cry out to him. You know, God's often working out his plan to glorify his son and save his people even when we don't realize it. God in his mercy is often doing things in our lives, and we don't even detect his hand, even though his hand of mercy is there at work. That's certainly the case here. God's setting into place events that will lead to the deliverance of the children of Israel before they ever turn to him and before they ever cry out to him. When you read that first sentence, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. What you're expecting to hear is now a new king came to the throne and things got better for the children of Israel. You know, the old guy's being mean to them and he's out of the way. And there's a new guy going to come in and things are going to start getting better. That's the expectation. That's not what happens. And what does happen is we're told the people cried out to him and we're told the way of deliverance and it's not through the new king going to be through God himself. In fact, Moses isn't even mentioned in this passage yet. Only God is mentioned. And so this sentence serves to point us to the way of deliverance and the fact that the people crying out and that deliverance and relief from bondage and slavery and oppression and suffering must come from God. Furthermore, the only development reported here upon the death of the king is Israel's crying out. Now, finally, they begin to think of God. Now, that may sound like a cruel thing to say about Israel after 429 years of slavery. But Ezekiel tells us that's the case. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 6, 7, and 8 says, on that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And what this passage is indicating to us is that Israel had in fact begun to drift away from God while they're in Egypt. And now we're seeing God's patience in his uh, timing for redeeming Israel from Egypt so that they would learn to cry out to him. Their hearts have strayed. They've begun to stray. They've begun to drift from God. They're going after the idols of Egypt. And he's waiting for their cries to rise up in order to draw them back to himself. In their suffering, God is preparing to draw them back to himself. Which begs the obvious question for us. Like the Israelites, do you use God as a last resort? Do you only cry out to him when things get really, really, really bad? In times of trouble, do you wait until the very last moment to lift up that cry? If so, God in his wisdom may wait for your sighs. He may wait for your groaning. He may wait for your uh, crying out in order that you would love him rather than keep using him. And apparently here, the children of Israel sought God only as their last resort. They sort of hung their hopes on getting a new king. Surely, life will get better. And it didn't. And so they cry out. This is actually the first time that Israel's been the subject of a verb since chapter 1, verse 7. They finally cry out to God because of their slavery and their misery. But I think their crying out to God is a sign of God being at work in them. Before God freed them, he put it in their hearts to cry out to him. Again, God is already at work. Before those cries ever came up to the throne, God is already active. It's almost as if God is sitting there waiting. Now, God's not slow on his people's behalf. He's more concerned for his people than they are for themselves. He's already been at work. He's already laying out his plan. But part of his plan is his people's hearts would be prepared to be redeemed. So he waits until the time comes when they cry out to God. This is the sign that God is working in the hearts of his people. Look again at Exodus 2, verses 24 and 25 and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. We have one verb for Israel and four for God. All these verses confirm the unity of God's plan and his covenant of grace, and Israel's exodus from Egypt is God's fulfillment of his promise to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God isn't initiating a new plan, never heard of before, never put in place before. He's simply fulfilling what he already told the patriarchs back in Genesis. So God hears his people's uh, groans. He recalls his covenant with Abraham. And his freeing of Israel from Egypt is part of his perfect, eternal plan, part of the blessings promised in that relationship when he established it with Abraham. You have to appreciate the continuity of what God's doing here. And it's easy to say, oh, Genesis to Exodus, I mean, they're right next to each other, first book, second book, and kind of forget 430 years. It's been a long time, and yet God's plan still carries on. And we're a culture where, you know, 430 minutes. It's like, whoa, it's taking so long. God's plan continues. You know, there's people who like to view that what God's doing now is sort of in a distinct box, totally separate and unrelated to what he was doing before, as if God, uh, you know, deals one way and his people fail, so he sets them uh, out another way and they fail again, and so he starts over again and you get plan A, B, C, D, E, and F. But what we see clearly at the end of Exodus 2 is is God is not instituting plan B. This is part of plan A. God knew this all along. He told Abraham about it hundreds of years before. And now he's carrying out the plan that he had told them to expect all along. So the first thing that should strike you, the unity of God's plan of redemption. The second thing that should strike you is this. You read about God hearing the groaning of Israel and remembering his covenant with Abraham and seeing the children of Israel, and it sort of leaves you waiting expectantly. You know, God uh, hears, and God remembers, and God sees, and God knows. What's God going to do next? And here's your answer. Chapter 3, verse 1, God reveals himself. God reveals says there, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Having been rejected by the Hebrews and hunted by the Egyptians, Moses is now reduced to tending his father-in-law's flocks in the wilderness. He's made his way, verse 1, to the west side of the wilderness. I really like the King James version of this. He's in the back side of the desert. That's where he is. Pretty humiliating location for a former prince of Egypt the backside of the desert. He is absolutely nowhere. And we can make an educated guess as to the kind of humiliation the seasonal life must entail for Moses. Back in Genesis 36, Joseph said, every shepherd is an abomination to an Egyptian. And that's who Moses has become, an abomination according to the Egyptian culture in which he was raised, A failure, according to the Hebrew culture in which he was born. And he's tending his father-in-law's flocks as an Egyptian abomination and as a Hebrew failure. And he comes close to Mount Horeb, and he sees this strange phenomenon, a bush on fire, which doesn't stop burning. The bush is unconsumed by the flames. And now Moses is curious. There's a bush burning, but it's not being burned up. The bush is ablaze, but the leaves and the branches aren't being consumed. And he's a tad curious about this, and he wants to investigate. I will turn aside to see this great sight, he says. Apparently, Moses sounds a lot like Bert and Ernie. Who knew? Anyway, those of you that remember Bert and Ernie, family favorite. Anyway, he goes towards the bush. Simple question. Why a burning bush? Simple answer. We don't know. It's been suggested that it's a symbol of the experiences of God's people in Egypt. They're going through trial by fire, as it were, and they're not being consumed. It's been suggested that perhaps this is a picture of the way God's going to bring them out of Egypt. They're going to go through many trials, but they won't be consumed. Probably the most straightforward answer is the fire is the symbol of the presence of God. The presence, the purity, the holiness of God. It's the case all the way back to Genesis 3. And God places the cherubim at the gate with the fiery sword to guard the entrance to Eden. It's been a long time ago since we were in Genesis, but remember the angels show up, fiery swords. Don't mess with the angels, okay? Life application for now and forever. They're not these nice little figurines that you put on the shelf. They're big and they're scary. They have fiery swords. Be nice. Here in Exodus, he's going to mark his holiness and his presence with his people. In Exodus 19, with a pillar of fire, a symbol of the presence of God. And as the pillar of fire uh, leads the children of Israel in their wandering, it's very explicitly said to be a sign of the presence of God. No pillar of fire, God's not there. So here we have a manifestation of a holy God. Another thing, we also don't know where the mountain is. You can go there today and they'll say, that's Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Same thing, we think. We're not even sure the origin of the languages. One's Hebrew, one's some other language. The reality is, I don't care what anybody says, nobody knows for sure, even today. We just don't know exactly. One of the things we'll see later on in Exodus is they don't care. The Israelites didn't know where the mountain of Moses was either. And they didn't care because there's nothing sacred about the place. It's the presence of God that makes the place sacred. There's nothing holy about a place. There is something holy about God's presence. There's nothing sacred about the mountain which would have led Moses to go there. It's that God was there. That's what made it holy. And notice again, the ground is holy, not because of the site or the location, but because of the presence of God. It's also interesting to note, this is the first time the word holy is used in the Bible. And it's used in direct connection with God. It's a great deal of significance in that. It's not that it's a holy site, or but that it's a holy God. His presence makes the place holy. Now, all the nations around Israel uh, believed in holy trees and holy bushes and holy sites and holy places, but Israel didn't. This place is holy because God is there. That's always the way it is with worship. And that means if God is here today in this sanctuary, then this place is holy, nothing to do with the facility, everything to do with whether or not God is here. It's always the way it is in worship. Furthermore, we see that Moses can't approach God before he knows exactly who he's approaching. God identifies himself as the God of his father, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac and of Jacob, before Moses can approach, Moses needs to know who it is, who he's approaching. And before you can approach God and worship, uh, you have to know who he is, but he can't even approach him until God gives him instructions on how he should approach him. So he must approach the one true God, and he must approach the one true God in the way the one true God tells him to. That's still the essence of worship today. God reveals himself to us, and God tells us how we should approach him in worship. It's exactly what we see here in Exodus 3. And so Moses turns aside, as I'm sure many of us would, to take a closer look. And as he gets close, his world turns upside down because the angel of the Lord identified throughout our passages, God himself speaks to Moses from the heart of the flames. And what follows is a conversation, if we can call it, that between uh, God and Moses. And he commissions Moses. Moses is going to be sent back to Egypt, become the agent of God and the deliverance of his people from slavery. But if Moses will accomplish this task, he has to depend not simply on his own uh, natural gifts and talents. He needs more. He needs the presence of God. Of course, he has no idea how God's going to accomplish this. So next we see that God reveals his plan. Verses 7 through 10, God reveals his plan. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is given a mission. The Lord has a job for Moses. He's already identified himself to Moses in verse 6. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And now he tells them, in fulfillment of his covenant promises to the patriarchs, he's going to bring the children of Israel out of bondage and into the land of Canaan. It's a land of plenty, but it's also an occupied land, verse 8. But nevertheless, it's a land he promises to give them. This is the promise to the patriarchs that he now renews with Moses. And this is good news. In a very real sense, this is the gospel. The announcement to Moses that God is going to save and rescue and deliver his suffering enslaved people, keep his covenants, and bring them into the promised land. It's the good news of God's promised salvation reaffirmed. And that's the good news. And I'm sure Moses found it wonderfully comforting. And we should too. But I can't help imagine Moses on the back side of the desert, the backside of this mountain, standing there finding himself wondering, well, what has this got to do with me exactly? I mean, I'm delighted that you're the God who hears the cries of his people. You know what? I'm a failure. I'm a dropout. I'm an abomination. I'm on the back side of the desert. The Hebrews don't want me and the Egyptians are trying to kill me. And then God drops the bombshell, verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And often that's the kind of person that God uses. Those who've been humbled and broken, who know their inadequacies. And at this point, Moses begins to sputter and offer excuses at this summons of God. The knowledge of God's love is wonderful, but the call of God, well, that's another story. And God delights to use us in our weakness and brokenness. The Apostle Paul says the exact same thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Talking to you. Uh, Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has done it all so all the glory would be his. And so God calls and confronts Moses. And Moses, for his part, seems altogether unprepared. Saving Israel is a dream that he once had, But when he acted, it went horribly wrong, and now he finds himself 40 years later on the backside of the desert. He's given up on that dream long ago, but God hasn't given up on Moses. He has other plans, and he calls Moses to serve him. It's very interesting in Exodus, we'll find that the words serve and worship are the same. They're used interchangeably. He says, serve me, he says, worship me, and he's constantly going back and forth, using those two words which is why we call it a worship service. Here you go. It's wonderful to be reminded of the love of God, as Moses is reminded here. His compassion, his pity, his understanding, his readiness to hear us when we call out and cry out to him. We're comforted by it, and that's a good thing. We should be comforted. But when we realize that the love of God and the compassion of God has a goal beyond ourselves, that this God of love and compassion is interested in more than our comfort, but is actually determined to use us in his service. Well, now that can be a real challenge, isn't it? I mean, can't that be, you know, I love all the, you know, God hears and remembers and saves stuff, but now it's you are going to go. Remember that guy who wanted to kill you? Yeah, that's where you're going. The people who don't like you, you're going to free them. The people who want to kill you, you're going to confront them. It'll be awesome. Trust me. Everything is great with God's message until he tells Moses, you're the man. You're my instrument. And then not so much. And Moses begins to offer excuses. He begins to balk. He begins to doubt. He begins to question. And we come to a key verse in the Bible where we see that God reveals his promise. The last uh, few verses here, verses 11 and 12, God reveals his promise. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Finally, we see Moses' objection to God's plan and this astounding response to God. God shows up physically. Angel of the Lord, burning bush, not consumed. Conversation with God. My gut feeling is... At that point, whatever God says, I'm probably going to say, yes, sir. Something like that. Probably while lying down with my face in the dirt. Moses is like, time out. You got the wrong guy. There are other guys. You need to call them. Way better. Who am I? Who am I to do this great thing? As we read further, we discover that no time is spent convincing Moses what Moses can do. But much time will be spent explaining to Moses what God can do. You and I tend to do the opposite. I mean, we would answer Moses, we'd explain to Moses, you're ideally suited to return to Egypt. Who better understands the culture of Egypt than a former prince? And we'd remind Moses how perfect he is for wilderness travel. I mean, who knows the desert better than a shepherd? And we'd spend time reviewing with Moses his resume and his strengths. Come on, Moses, you can do it. Just give it a try. God didn't do any of that. The strength of Moses is never considered. No pep talk is given. No pats on the back are offered. Not one word is spoken to recruit Moses. But many words are used to reveal God. Because the strength of Moses is not the issue. The strength of God is. The application ought to be slapping you in the face right about now. Let's repeat that last sentence, and you fill in the blank. Replace the name of Moses with your name. We'll do this together, out loud. You can do this. The strength of... Oh, that's... The strength of better, we're not there yet. The strength of is not the issue. The strength of God is. The strength of you is not the issue. The strength of God is. In fact, Moses' objections actually reveal a lack of faith. It's the exact same thing Israel's going to struggle with actually for the next 40 years. We're not so sure this is the best idea here. Couldn't we go back to Egypt? They're going to say that over and over and over again in the wilderness. And God's answer to Moses' objection is stunning. He says to him that he's the one who'll do the work. He says, I'm the one who's come down to deliver the people, bring the people out of, uh, of Israel, out of Egypt. He begins the work. He completes the work. And the sign that he has done the work will be when Israel worships him at that mountain. In other words, he's saying, Moses, here's the sign that it is I who will bring the children out of Israel. You will come to this mountain and you will worship me. When you get to this mountain, Moses, they're not going to be worshiping you. When you come to this mountain, you're going to be worshiping me. And it's very important you understand that Exodus 3, verse 12 makes it crystal clear that the redemption of Israel out of bondage in Egypt is in order that they may become worshipers of God. It's the same with us. We're saved to worship. Exodus 3 makes it clear. And by the way, it's not just Exodus 3.12. It's Exodus 3.18 and Exodus 4.23 and Exodus 5.1 and Exodus 5.3, and that's as far as I went. We'll see even more later in the book. Passages make it clear that God's people are redeemed in order that they might worship him. God sends Moses to Egypt to deliver his people so they might come out and worship him. That's the point. Now, if you've been looking at your notes, you'll see I've taken some words. That little Latin phrase that you're wondering about, well not Van Dyke, but everybody else. He's Latin guy. We have a few Latin people here. And you know the simple little phrase probably comes from the Latin Vulgate. Nec common consumavitur. I'm not sure I pronounced that right, but that's as good as it gets. I teach my students, when you get to those really hard words, just say them with authority and everybody will think you're right. Neck not, common however, consuma bator, the present passive participle of it is not being consumed. Not, however, is it being consumed. And that refers to the bush itself. And what you don't know is the image of the burning bush is the historic image image of the presbyterian church it was the this motto was taken by the scottish church this is the motto of the original church of scotland during a time of great persecution applied to the church the church was going through the fires of persecution but not however is it being consumed why was the scottish church able to take this motto from the story of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus 3. I think because they understood what God the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate through Moses and through his life. See, this event clearly parallels the prologue to Jesus' ministry. Any Jewish Christian and any Gentile Christian in the days of the early church huddled with a, some small group of believers reading a scrap of the Gospel of Matthew would have recognized this. I mean, can you imagine the Jewish Christian hearing one of the elders read to him from Matthew 1 and 2 and he hears about Herod attempting to kill Jesus and Jesus and his family fleeing into Egypt and then coming out of Egypt. And immediately they would have thought, well, that's just like Moses. And some Gentile Christian hearing the book of Exodus read to him from a parchment from the first time and he hears the story at the end of Exodus 2 and he would have immediately said, That's just like Jesus. God intends the passage to strike us that way. That part in Matthew chapter 2 says, Now when they had departed, speaking of the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Jump down to Matthew 2.19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. We have here God foreshadowing his grand redemptive plan in Christ through Moses in the Exodus. God is giving us a taste beforehand of what he's going to do in his grand redemptive plan. And God's providence often works in and through seemingly ordinary human events, events that don't seem to have any spiritual rhyme or reason to them, and yet, That's what he's using to bring about the accomplishment of his purposes for his people. And that's why the Scottish church could say, at a very dark day, not, however, is it being consumed. Because God hadn't finished his plan yet. As believers, as the church, we can survive persecution and hardships and trials and tribulations and stupid politicians and family conflicts, and broken relationships, and bondage to sin, because God's still at work. And he wants us to know that. And he wants us to trust him in that. And he wants us to cry out to him in the midst of that. And he wants us to meet him, the God who is revealed in Exodus, and to know that even as we cry out to him in prayer, this revealed God is acting prior to our prayers. Do you believe that? This revealed God is acting prior to our prayers. We should act on that. It's time to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son and by your word. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Draw us closer to yourself through the revelation of yourself, through the revelation of your plan, through the revelation of the promise of your presence, through the revelation of your glory. Lead us to greater worship as you reveal yourself as rescuer, deliverer, redeemer, and savior. Enable us to trust you, knowing you're still at work and that you're acting even prior to our prayers. And for this, we give you thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Receive God's blessing. The Apostle Paul writes to the church and says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God bless you. We'll see you next week.